0: It's because of the kindness of our great Lord that we have our special guest preacher today. Dr. Steve Lawson, uh, one of our uh, seminary professors, says John MacArthur, in his estimation, is the greatest preacher of our time. Uh, Pastor John has been a faithful defender of truth for many years, through thousands of sermons preached at Grace Church and at conferences in other places author of hundreds of books, began a seminary, headed up a university for many years, and training many leaders globally in, in, in the commitment to teach the Word of God to leaders around the world. And he's faithfully pastored the, or is faithfully pastoring the local church at Grace Church for the last 53 years. 53 years. And he's been a personal friend to me and um, and to our church to Evergreen Church. So, Pastor John, will you please bring us the word today?
1: Thank you, Rob. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's hard for me today to get the Ukraine out of my mind because... Over the years, I made about maybe ten trips to the former Soviet Union. And almost every time I went there, um, I went to the Ukraine, because that was the strongest country in terms of evangelical churches. And in fact, over the years since those early trips, we have um, established a couple of seminaries in the Ukraine, and have currently trained, I think, through those seminaries, about a thousand Ukrainian pastors. So um, I think about these these men that I spent weeks with, long hours in the day, teaching them the Word of God, and uh, and I know they're hunkered down, as Rocky said, in basements and wondering what the future is, but their faith shines brightly, and they are praying that the Lord will, as He always does, use this for His glory. So certainly I join you in praying for them. And I want to say it's a joy to be here. I got to meet your pastor a few years ago uh, when Steve Lawson and I went to Seattle and ended up in the uh, Seattle Seahawks practice facility and connected to Rocky, and both Steve and myself were has been football players from long ago. We had a lot in common with Rocky. I remember Steve throwing me a few passes on the indoor turf up there in the Seahawks practice center. And um, there's something about um, there's something about the visceral nature of football that if you've ever competed in football, you sort of understand each other. It's like war, but nobody dies. <laughs> and um, and so you just keep fighting and fighting and fighting. And there's some there's some sense of uh, understanding that exists between those who engaged in football. So Rocky and I hit it off, and God had much more purpose in mind for that and brought him here. And I told him a couple of years ago that I would be available to come and preach, and he's asked me so many times that I was beginning to feel guilty. And uh, Grace Church needed one Sunday of mercy to be delivered from me. So, here I am with a thankful and joyful heart. I I want to have you turn in your Bible to Psalm 19, Psalm 19. We just sung, Speak, O Lord. And that is the perfect introduction to this particular psalm and what I want to say about it, but I want to have you notice the psalm in its entirety. So. Let me read it to you. Psalm 19, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth. And their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. This is a unified hymn by David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it declares that God indeed speaks. God has spoken. And He has spoken in two ways. First of all, generally in His world, and specifically in His Word. He has spoken in creation non-verbally. He has spoken in Scripture verbally. He has spoken in creation without words. He has spoken in Scripture with words. But God has spoken. And it's a good thing. If God had not spoken, we would have no way of ever knowing Him personally. We call the first general revelation, and we call the second specific revelation. The first revelation of God is in the created world, and we saw that in verses 1-6. through 6. But notice the language here. In verse 1 it says, telling and declaring, and then it says, In verse 2, He pours forth speech. And again in verse 2, He reveals. So God is telling, and God is revealing, and God is speaking. But then it says, but without words. Verse 3, there's no speech. There's no words. No voice is heard. Still, this revelation is universal. Its line, verse 4 says, has gone out through all the earth. Everyone hears God speak without words. Everyone. These utterances, says verse 4, go to the ends of the earth. The ends of the world. How is this the case? Because He has placed a tent meaning the universe, for the sun. And everyone sees the sun. Everyone. And the sun is like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber. It's like a sunrise. And then it becomes like a strong man as it runs its course, lighting all those who are under it. And the circuit of the sun, the rising of the sun is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And that is to say that God has spoken in a way that everyone hears His voice. Every human being sees the sun, feels the heat of the sun. The sun is the centerpiece of our life, our part of the universe. But he says it's, it's more vast than we would ever imagine. Verse 6. When he talks about its rising and then its going to the end of the heavens, he's telling us something that science has found out. The sun has an orbit. The sun literally drags our solar system from one end of heaven to the next. And the sun is moving at half a million miles an hour, dragging our entire earth and solar system through the universe in an orbit around the spiral Milky Way that takes 230 million years to complete. Going half a million miles an hour, it takes 230 million years to complete its orbit, and it drags the whole solar system. In the scientific knowledge of our time, anyone would be a fool who didn't believe in a god. You mean to tell me that nobody times nothing equals everything? You mean to tell me this massive universe and the sun, which is the very center of our life, was an accident? That, that is on the level of somebody who thinks he's a potato chip, if that's what you believe. But there's one thing about the revelation of God. It is clear. The revelation in creation is clear. It's so clear that Romans 1 says this, "...the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. How? Since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen." As the psalmist says in the sun and everything else in the macro-creation, so clearly seen, so understood, that men are without what? Excuse. General revelation, the revelation of God in creation, God speaking without words is enough to damn people. They're without excuse if they don't acknowledge God. It reveals God, but only enough to condemn. If that's all we had, we would be under condemnation because we would have no knowledge of a way to understand our sin, alienation, and the path to reconciliation. And that's why the important part of the psalm starts in verse 7. Here God speaks in words. And here we are introduced to God's own definition of the Scripture. Now just look at verses 7, 8, and 9 for a moment. There are six lines of thought here. Follow along. Each line has three elements. Six titles for Scripture. It is called law, testimony in verse 7, precepts, commandment in verse 8, fear and judgments in verse 9. There are six characteristics of Scripture. It is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true. Six benefits of Scripture. Restores the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, endures forever, and produces comprehensive righteousness. This is divine genius on display. This is God, by the Holy Spirit, saying everything that could be said about the Scripture with an economy of words that is staggering. This is a comprehensive statement on the absolute sufficiency of the Word of God said in three verses, not 150 like Psalm 119. And please notice six times of the Lord, 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 in case somebody might question the source of Scripture. So here is God's own testimony to the total adequacy of His Word. And while His Word condemns those who believe, who condemns those who do not believe, His Word offers in words the path to escape that condemnation. But let's look at the character of Scripture to start with. First of all, verse 7, the law of the Lord, and we'll stop there, law. Scripture is divine instruction. The law is Torah. Torah. What you have in Scripture is God teaching man divine truth. It is His law. It is the law of the Lord. That is to say, these are not opinions. This is not negotiable. This is the law of God. This is God's will explained for man. This is God giving us everything we need to know about everything that matters and telling us all the time nothing but the truth. So the Bible, the Word of God, is divine law. It is God's instruction for man's conduct. And He's the Creator, and this is the book that gives us the manner in which the created human is to function if he wants access to God, forgiveness, and salvation. So the law is God's divine instruction. Now notice it says the law is perfect. Now in the Hebrew, that doesn't mean so much perfect in the sense of uh, contrasting it to imperfect, although it certainly does that. But it really carries the idea of complete. In fact, uh, you might look at a Hebrew lexicon and see it basically described as, here's one definition, all-sided so as to completely cover all aspects of life. This is a kind of perfection that is not just perfection as opposed to imperfection, but perfection as opposed to incompleteness. This is the full instruction. Nothing left out. It is flawless, but it is also comprehensive. A comprehensive, flawless law, completely sufficient to do what? Back to verse 7. Restoring the soul. Restoring is a verb that means to convert, to revive to refresh. I'd like to translate it, transform. So here we have the Word of God identified as divine law, comprehensive, so as to totally transform the soul. What is the soul? Nefesh. The person, the self. It's translated about 20 ways in English Bibles, but nefesh always means the inner person, that eternal soul, self, the inner person. So what do we learn there? The Word of God is utterly sufficient for the total transformation, restoration, and perfection of the whole inner person. This is a massive statement. 1 Peter one twenty three says, We are born again, not by corruptible seed, but by incorruptible, by the Word of God. And this is the Word by which the gospel is preached unto you. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, because the Word has the power to totally transform the whole inner person. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? The power of God unto salvation. John signs off his gospel. These things are written that you might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and believing have life in His name. The power of salvation is in the book. It's not in a technique It's not in a methodology. It's not in a strategy. The power is in the Word. It is the power of God unto salvation. It doesn't need to be assisted by some manipulation of people's minds and hearts. The power is in the Word of God. That's a beginning, and there's five more. The second statement about Scripture, verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Testimony – what is that? Well, the first one was divine instruction. This is divine witness. What you have in the Bible is God giving you His own testimony, God telling you about Himself. God's testimony as to who He is, what He has done, and what He will do, and what He requires. And His testimony is sure, meaning unmistakable, unwavering, reliable, able to be trusted and followed. It is what Peter calls a more sure word, more sure than any other word. This is sure in contrast, by the way, to all the lies and untrustworthy notions of men. And the testimony of the Lord that is sure, I love this, makes wise the simple. What is that about? Well, the word simple in Hebrew basically at its root means an open door. It it simply means an open door. Hebrew language is very concrete, as opposed to Greek, which is more abstract. So, what do you mean an open door? Well, an open door, they would say, is um, let's just say your mind. You hear somebody say, "Well, I have an open mind." Well, God would say, "Shut it, please." What do you mean you have an open mind? You you. you Do you understand how important the door on your house is? Shut it, because you want to keep some things in like your kids, and some things out like salespeople and the riffraff. You have a door to discern what comes and goes. So simple people had the door open all the time to their mind. They were naive, they were inexperienced, they were undiscerning, they were uninformed, they were highly susceptible to lies and deception, they were gullible. How do you take somebody who has no discernment, doesn't know truth from lies, and, oh, by the way, is a child of Satan who is a liar and the father of all liars, and who has to deal with natural hostility? toward the truth. All non-believers do. John 8, 45 says, Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe Me. That That's the condition. That's the natural hostility of all unconverted people. So, the, the simple person with the door wide open, allowing everything to come and go without discernment, is literally living in the middle of satanic deception all the time. How does that person get to a place of discernment where they know when to close the door? The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. The word wise is "shakam" in Hebrew. It basically means skilled in discerning life skilled in discerning the issues of life. The Bible will take a person who has no discernment and make them highly skilled in navigating life with true discernment because the testimony of the Lord is sure. The practical matter of living life and living life well and Living life in a fulfilling sense and living life so that you end up in heaven is a matter of being able to discern the truth. And what provides that discernment is the Word of God. There's a third statement here in verse 8, the precepts of the Lord. What do you mean by precepts? Let's just say divine doctrine. A precept is a, is a statement. It's a, it's a statement of fact. And the Scripture are statements of fact, statements of true doctrine from the Lord. Basic principles of truth. And they are right. That's just so simply said. They are right. The word right doesn't mean right as opposed to wrong. That's obvious. It essentially means they set a right path. The Scripture, with all of its divine precepts, establishes the right path. You know, the psalmist said, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path." It is that, but it is even more than that. It is the path as well as the light. It is the path. This is the way, walk in it. Scripture lays out the path of life. And what is the result of that? Verse 8, rejoicing the heart. Rejoicing the heart. True joy comes from walking the path of righteousness. What did John say? These things I write unto you, that your joy may be what? Full. I'm I'm giving you these things, these precepts, these truths, so that in obeying them, you live with full joy. Jeremiah said, Your words were found, Jeremiah 15, And I did eat them, and your word was in me, the joy and rejoicing of my heart how do we find happiness how do we find joy i mean deep settled contentment and satisfaction it comes from to borrow the language of colossians 3:16 letting the word of christ dwell in you richly which immediately produces psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as the heart rejoices Psalm 834 God said, "Happy is the man who hears me." Luke 11:28Happy are they who hear the word and obey it." When the eunuch in Acts 8 received the true interpretation of Isaiah 53 and understood the gospel, it says he believing was baptized and went on his way what rejoicing scripture is the source of true lasting profound unassailable joy doesn't matter what's going on around you it's a it's an untouchable joy because it is unrelated to circumstances back then again to verse 8. And the fourth statement about Scripture, the commandment of the Lord. Mark it down. The Bible is commandment. These titles are various ways to look at the Scripture as if they were facets on a diamond. It's the same diamond, but it has different angles. This looks at Scripture as divine commands by the sovereign God, who demands obedience. They are binding. They are not optional. They are not negotiable. They are authoritative. That's why the language of Scripture identifies those who follow God and follow Christ in the New Testament as slaves. In your Bible, it's usually translated bond-servant or servant-servant. But the word doulos, which appears all over the New Testament, always means slave. In the new Legacy Standard Bible, everywhere that appears in the New Testament, we translate it as slave, and it constantly reminds every believer that Jesus is Lord, and that means I'm His slave. So what you have in the Word of God are commandments, which then poses the question, If these are authoritative commands from God, I should know what they are, which then leads you to an accurate interpretation of Scripture so that you know what God desires, you know what God wants, you know what you desire because there's joy in the obedience, and you want to walk as a willing and loving slave to the One who is your Master. Notice again in verse 8 the Bible is commandment but it is pure pure as the NAS it's actually the word clear it means lucid easy to see do you remember how many times Jesus said in his ministry to people who apparently were confused he said this have you not read have you not read have you not read have you not read, have you not read? What he was saying is that the Old Testament, if they had been reading it, would have revealed to them that what they were doing was completely alien to God. And it was only a matter of, have you not read? This is what we call the perspicuity of Scripture. It is clear. If it's not clear to you, it's because either you don't know the Lord, and so you're fighting against the truth, or you do know Him, but you're not diligent. Scripture is clear, it's crystal clear, and as such, notice he says, it enlightens the eyes. People in this world live with muddy understanding of just about everything, everything. We're the only people who have clarity because we know the Word of the Creator. His Word enables us to understand the dark things. I was thinking about this yesterday. People were saying to me, well, Why is Putin doing this? Well, James answers that. Why do you war? Because you lust and you have not. And you seek to fulfill your lust. This isn't rocket science. He's a wicked, vicious, lustful man, desirous of power prestige, prominence. I was in Kiev when the Soviet Union collapsed. I was there the days that scaffolds were set up all around Kiev and guys with sledgehammers got up on those scaffolds and smashed down every statue in that city of Lenin. I watched those statues fall. What motivates Putin? He wants his statues. He lusts, and he can't have, so he goes to war. This is clear. When your eyes are open, you understand everything. I remember some years back, a family who were missionaries uh, among the Mormons up in Utah. John and Nora. They had some beautiful children, and they uh, they wanted their kids to come down uh, to uh, the Masters University. So, they drove down in their van and brought the kids, and it was a Saturday. They were planning to go to Grace Church. They were longing to go to Grace Church on the Sunday, and they were leaving the location of the Masters University, and a truck ran through a red light, hit the van and killed the children. It hit behind where John and Nora were sitting in the front, but it killed the children and it it killed one of their friends. And I remember later that day when I was told what had happened, talking to John, and this is what he said to me. I wanted our children to be in a large church Ours is very small. I wanted our children to hear a choir, a great choir sing. I wanted our children to worship at Grace Church. But God wanted them to worship in heaven. That's clarity. That's his initial response to having lost his family. You can live with that kind of clarity. And that kind of hope. There's nothing confusing. The darkness is to us as God says it is to Him. In the Psalms He says the darkness is light to Him. And the darkness is light to us. We understand why people lie. We understand why the world is corrupt. We understand why it's getting worse. The word is sufficient for salvation. The word is sufficient for skill in living. The word is sufficient for joy and happiness. The word is sufficient for clarity and understanding, even into things not easily understood. There are two more. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord. This is another title for Scripture which describes Scripture as basically the manual on worship. Fearing God is worshiping God. Fear is a metonym for worship. So this is divine worship. This is the manual for worship, and worship is the priority. In John 4, Jesus said, the Father seeks true worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. If you ever wondered why you were saved, you just need to know that ultimately you were saved for one purpose, to become a worshiper instead of a blasphemer. And you will see the fulfillment of that forever in the presence of the Lord, when all you will do is worship Him with all your enhanced faculties. The Father seeks true worshipers who worship Him in spirit and truth. And when you gather on a Sunday like this, as your pastor said, this is a taste of heaven. And you can worship because your worship is based on truth, because Scripture is clear. You understand it. Scripture also, verse 9 says, is clean. I love that. Without corruption, without error. This is in contrast to every other book and to every other religion. The word here means defilement, filthiness, imperfection. That's the opposite. The word describing Scripture is clean. The words of the Lord, says Psalm 12, are pure words like silver tested seven times in a furnace of earth purified. And because it is so pure, so clean, the result is in verse 9, it endures forever. It is timeless. Timeless. Lasting. Relevant. Needs no updating. One final statement on the Word. The judgments of the Lord are true. They produce comprehensive righteousness. This looks at Scripture as really divine verdicts, divine judgments. In other words, Scripture renders the judgments of God. We know how God feels about everything that's revealed in Scripture. This is what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians when he said we have the mind of Christ. God is the judge of all the earth. He has committed all judgment to Christ and because we know God's standards we also can make righteous judgments. And the judgments of the Lord are always true, just in fact, Scripture says, your word is truth. John seventeen, seventeen. Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The world is ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's literally impossible for them to get there because the natural man understands not the things of God. They're foolishness to him. Preaching of the cross is foolishness to him. But to the one who understands the Word of God, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are literally righteous altogether, or collectively they produce righteousness. They are correct, and they become the correction for us on every level. So when you hold in your hand the Word of God, this is what you have, a sufficient word, to totally transform the inner person, to take an undiscerning person and make them skill in all matter of wise living, to provide joy and happiness, to provide clarity on every issue, including those dark things, to provide a clean, believable source of divine truth that is untarnished. And that truth produces comprehensive righteousness. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God that we might be complete, Paul said to Timothy. So that is what the testimony of God is to His own Word. What is the response? First of all, look at verse 10. Our first response is to say, Scripture, then, is our greatest possession. The words of Scripture are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Scripture is precious, more Precious than anything else, it is the most precious thing in the universe. It is the greatest possession you have. And not only is your greatest possession, it is your greatest pleasure. Look at the second half of verse ten. Sweeter also than, <clears throat> sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. It is precious and it is sweet. How many times in Psalm one nineteen does? The psalmist say, I delight in Your Word at least twenty times. It is Your greatest possession. It is Your greatest pleasure. It is sweeter than anything else, more precious than anything else. Verse 11 says, It's also Your greatest protector. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. The Bible is your defense. If you don't know the Scripture, you can stumble into sin. You can stumble into error because you can't defend yourself if you don't know the Word of God. You might own a Bible and in that sense own the sword of the Spirit, but if you can't wield the sword of the Spirit, and that is apply the given truth of Scripture to the given temptation, you're exposed. You need to master this book so you hold the sword against every temptation. It is your greatest protection. It is also your greatest provider. In keeping them, these words, there is great reward. In keeping them, there is great reward. This is from God. Who is the one who gives all the rewards? What is the value of Scripture? It is my greatest possession. It holds my greatest pleasure. It is my greatest protection. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not what? Sin. It is my greatest provider. In the keeping of Scripture, there is the great reward. What's that? The eternal reward. Your eternal reward in the presence of the Lord one day is going to be a reflection of your faithfulness to Scripture. You don't want to be short-sighted about that because that reward is forever. Forever. The one who lives by this Word lives with eternity in view. That's what Paul meant in Colossians when he said, Set your affections on things above. He's not talking about some kind of spiritual romantic notion. He's saying, If you set your affections on things above, if you love what God has prepared for you in heaven, then you're going to live in the direction of that everlasting reward. And everything in this world will fall away. And finally, Scripture is your greatest purifier. Look at verse 13. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I will be acquitted of great transgression. Keep me back from errors. Presumptuous sins are deliberate sins. The great transgression is apostasy or rebellion. The psalmist is saying the Word will preserve me. The Word continually purifies me. What a treasure. Our greatest possession, our greatest pleasure... Our greatest protector, our greatest provider, our greatest purifier. When you have somebody who stands in this pulpit and teaches you the Word of God, you ought to run to be here every time He does it. Because you need every single thing that's in this book. Because it is your greatest possession, pleasure, protector, provider, and purifier. And that's how the psalmist ends the psalm. How else could you end it but with this? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You say, well, that sounds like something disconnected from what's gone before. It isn't the psalmist is reaching back to Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8 which says this, This book of the law, the Word of God, shall not depart from your mouth. Did you get that? It's not that you take it in, it's that you... Talk about it. It never departs from your mouth. And you meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Let me make sure you heard that. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night do all that is written in it, then you make your way prosperous, then you have good success. The psalmist knows that text. So when he says, back to Psalm 19, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, he's reaching right back to Joshua 1.8, and he knows that the words of his mouth and the meditation of his heart have to be on the book of the law then His words and His meditation is acceptable in the sight of God who is His Lord, His Rock, and His Redeemer. The Bible says a lot about itself in a lot of places. Nowhere does it say more than in Psalm 19, verse 7 to 14. It is the summation of everything. You turn your back on this truth at your own risk. Listen to the words of Isaiah, chapter 5, verse 24 and 25. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble, and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot, and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. On this account, the anger of the Lord has burned Against his people. The positive is in Psalm 19, the terrifying negative judgment like fire, like rot, like reducing everything to dust for those who reject the law of the Lord. Jeremiah 8 9. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do they have? You want to see? Just look at the world. You're being led by leaders all across the world who have no wisdom because they've rejected the word of the Lord. If you look at it from a national standpoint, you might find a glimmer of hope In Psalm 81, and I'll close with this. In Psalm 81, there's a couple of verses, verse 11 and 12. But my people didn't listen to my voice, and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. Just like Romans 1. I let them go. because they didn't listen. They didn't obey. And then in verse 13, he says, Oh, that my people would listen to me and walk in my ways. The Lord still offers that to individuals. He was offering it there actually to Israel. There's no hope There's no hope for anyone, there's no hope for any group, there's no hope for any nation to escape the insanity and deception and lies of Satan, except to come under the power, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture, which leads to all the blessings that we saw in the psalm. That's where our lives should be lived. Father, we thank You again for the gift of divine truth. We thank You for the Scripture. We have felt like You have given us a deep drink of the well, of the water of life. And just looking at one psalm, So amazing how precious Your Word is. Increase our love for You through the Word, which reveals Your glory to us. We ask this for the sake of Christ. Amen.